Well, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Open Swim. I am your host, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, along with Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Jasinski, Lauren Mettinson. Before we jump into the topic today, just a little bit of housekeeping. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, because we have a whole host of exciting topics coming up this summer and into the fall. Today, we're talking about something that is very near and dear to our hearts and at the core of many of the projects that we have gotten involved in over the course of the time we've been a firm, but particularly in the last couple of years, as many of our clients have become a lot more strategically minded, refocusing efforts in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that topic is around branding. So we're here with Brian and Lauren to talk a little bit about their perspectives in design, as well as Eric, who is going to be talking about strategy. So hey, guys. Hello. Thanks for being here today. And I wanted to just start this off at a high level, because I think that there are a lot of people out there that might be thinking, why invest in branding? Why does it matter? And I'd love for Brian and Lauren for you to jump in and talk a little bit about your perspectives and why this is an area of unique interest as well as worthy of investment in time, energy, talent, and resources. So give us your thoughts. Why does branding matter? I believe branding matters. You think of a logo, and a logo in many ways is the cornerstone of any organization or business. It's a visual voice for your organization. It sets the tonality, it sets the personality, and it's also a vessel for your your mission, your vision, and your values. So there's so much that can be built into a logo beyond the visual. Absolutely. Lauren, what about you? 100% agree. Um, a logo is used as a visual symbol for an organization. And Aside from being a visual, you look around anywhere in the world and you see logos everywhere. Whether you're just walking down the street or at a store, anywhere there is a logo by you. So it really impacts the day-to-day life. Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting. I think it impacts not just day-to-day life, but your perception without you even knowing it. It's It's been really interesting for me to watch my kids, our kids, I should say. <laughs> Eric is also in the room. Um, who, you know, while they're only seven and five, you know, they'll point to a logo and say, look at that picture and they know exactly what it is. And they really understand branding without having had too much exposure to it. And there's so much psychology that goes into branding and the way it makes you feel about a company's products or services. Again, there are a lot of brands out there where they they trend towards explanatory rather than a feeling. And I'm curious if you have, you know, a perspective on how important it is to convey, you know, say positioning or values, you know, how much does that come into play when you start to think about creating a new mark or a new set of typography for a client? Well, you know, as I was saying, I, you know, a logo embodies a personality and a tonality, but I also often like to think that it possesses an energy. So that energy is going to translate and communicate to the viewer what this organization is. Are they traditional? Are they established? Is it modern? Uh, Is it forward thinking? Is it progressive? And it's not that they're one or the other. They could be a mixture of these things. But obviously, different industries are going to have different tonality and a different presence to their mark. It may be in the typography. It may be in the form, the color that's used. All of these things are all building materials when we're developing these logos. 
Absolutely. And I know that, you know, with both of you and the rest of our design team, a lot of times you'll talk about it as a toolkit, so to speak. It's often, particularly with modern marks, modern brands, I've noticed that you've started migrating more towards this kit of parts type approach where you're not always using a traditional lockup of a brand and you're giving brands a lot more flexibility. Would you say that that's a trend in design, something that you think about or something that, why is the reason that you create systems in that way? Well, I'll let Lauren elaborate on this further because there's definitely been some systems you've been working on that have really had to embody that. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's a trend. I would say it's a reflection of organizations and the way that their businesses are evolving or being developed, you know, where there there could be multi-services, there might be different disciplines, you know, so this kit of parts is is reflective of that those services and and the way that they are presenting themselves to their customers and to their peers within their industry. Definitely. A lot of the brains that we've been working on lately kind of go with this kit of parts approach because we have to think of a brand of how it's used in multiple different areas. So thinking from a website perspective, the logo doesn't always have to be in the top left-hand corner of a website. It can be in the center, it can be wherever we want. And another thing that I like to personally think about a lot when I'm creating a logo is how can I kind of break it apart into pieces and use it as a pattern? A pattern is established from a simple shape and typically a logo starts with that simple shape too. So um, by having such simple logos that we can create into complex brand identity systems, we can really create a whole system for the brand that consists of a wallpaper or different patterns, textures on a website, on different print materials. And it's so important to help develop the brand. One thing that I think is really interesting working with the design team here at Shark and Minnow versus other design teams I've worked with over the course of my career is Brian's leadership comes out of a traditional design shop approach and different from other experiences I've had both on the agency and client side where it's more of a marketing first approach. It's just a very, very different way of thinking about brands, building brands, coming up with form and function, the science and the psychology behind it, the extensive research that happens and goes into informing these brands um, that our clients sometimes don't even think about when they hire us to, to kind of make a brand or create something new for them. But that approach is something that I think is truly unique in the marketplace, having worked with teams Um, across my career that approach design in a different way. So I know that's been a real education for me in the time that we've been working together. And I think it brings depth to the process in ways that I hadn't experienced before. I think the other thing that, you know, truly does set the branding work that we do here apart is the way that we approach it from a strategic standpoint. You know, a number of the brands that we have worked on over the course of time here together at Shark and Minnow uh, it involve a research phase. And Eric, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about how research can be really helpful when developing a new brand, what types of things you look for at, you know, at that stage to inform the branding process and be able to really give the design team some kind of meaty insights to work off of. Yeah, absolutely. With research, we our goal is to reveal those insights that will guide everything that we do. And there's kind of two different approaches or schools of thought, exploratory research 
or explanatory research. And with re um, research for design, it's really exploratory because we want to give all of these insights to the design team to inspire them. If we go in there explaining and solving everything for them, it leaves little room for creativity. So really allowing ourselves to explore and, and immerse ourselves in the experience of the customer, the client, their stakeholders, whether it be board members or other individuals that they have as strategic partners or advisors, we need to know everything that we can about them. So that could take the form of in-depth interviews, focus groups, online surveys, observation, which truly is one of the most amazing things that you can do in research. Just again, immersing yourself in those experiences, but then observing what's happening around you. How are people interacting with the brand? Um, we're working on a brand identity project right now, and our team went out into the community and acted as residents, you know, and just explored and went to the local businesses and the parks. You have to take on that firsthand experience in order to really be one with the brand. I think that's great insight. You know, I think back on a project that I was involved with many years ago that it was a project where the creative was being validated by qualitative research without some of that upfront research having taken place. And I think when you get to that point where you know it's important to validate with your stakeholders to make sure that the marketing is going to sing, the branding is going to sing, but you haven't done the homework upfront to get it right, oftentimes you find yourself in a place of basically asking different people, do you like it? It becomes really individualized and it's really hard to get to a point of saturation with the branding so that you know as you launch with your target audience that you can be successful. So I know it sounds like a lot of work to do up front, but what we've found is that that research up front can really be the difference maker between success and failure for brands. And fortunately, we've seen our work resonate with target audiences in a surprising way. Some of the intended results, but not necessarily easy to draw a line between results that may happen as a result of a rebrand are things like repositioning, of course. But in addition to that, we've seen sales spike for both B2B and B2C businesses. We've seen private equity funding come from um, just the recognition that, that a company cares enough to really go to market with its front foot forward. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how something that is creative and perceived by some in the business world as a nice-to-have is really a must-have if you're looking to make a difference with your intended target audience. Absolutely. And, and just as humans, we are constantly evolving and so are the brands. And for some instances, some of these organizations, their marks will stand the test of time, but others, they need to be updated to reflect the changing pillars of their organization, whether that's their, their mission statement has changed, their, their vision for the future has changed, or their staff and talent has changed. So they just need to keep an eye on that evolution and make sure that their brand is always in alignment with what's happened internally. Eric, I'm wondering if you can talk to us about what you have described in the past as an anatomy of a brand. You know, what makes up a brand and how might, um, you know, this guide the way that clients think about, do I have a brand that's really performing for my organization? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's six elements that we focus on here at Charcomento. And we actually start with the first one, which is presence. So really thinking about all those visual aspects that come to mind when you see a mark. At, at just the definition of a brand, it is that mark. It's an identifier. So initially we talked 
about the idea of the presence and the visuals that are connected there. But really, we need to understand the, the principles that guide the organization, all of those attributes, whether it be statements like mission and vision, as well as values that guide the talent and employees at an organization. We also want to think about the platforms that the brand lives on. Of course, everyone is thinking about social media platforms, but it goes beyond that as we think about different environments, as such as experiences, you know, your retail experience, if you're a, a brick and mortar, and what is that experience? like in the storefront. Also thinking about the people. So your, your employees, your talent, your stakeholders, everyone has to take on this brand and own it together. And then lastly, we have to think about performance because the success of your brand is really guided by all these different attributes that we want to think about when it comes to a brand or parameters. So thinking about brand awareness, recognition, these are all really important brand benchmark metrics that you need to keep track of. And it does influence how your brand performs overall and involves and really influences how your brand uh, evolves over time. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting, too, to think about, you talk about people, for example. We oftentimes talk about external target audiences, but I would add that in the last two years, one thing that's become very clear with many of the clients we work with is that they are also focused on internal audiences and how brands can work to attract and retain the type of top talent that they're looking for. And that's been a key driver for several of the brands that we've worked with to really get it right, to be sure that their branding is the light that drives the work that they want to create today and who they create it with and how they create it in the future. Absolutely. And I can, I can speak f- firsthand just when we go through the process of hiring here at Shark and Minnow, we are always looking for someone that embodies those values that we have. It, it really defines their character and all of our staff members have those characteristics. So we want someone that will be able to integrate into our community but at the same time, bring unique experiences, you know, thinking about multidisciplinary skill sets. But having a core set of values is what defines a community. And any organization, nonprofit, for profit, needs to think about it that way when they think about their talent. Absolutely. I would also say I think the importance of the anatomy of a brand, those different elements that, Eric, you described, you know, reflects, Hallie, back to what you were saying about the difference of you know, when we began to collaborate from your experience of brand development, I think from my experience of brand development and design over the years has evolved and been influenced in the same way um, from the different perspective of having that support of the research and the strategy that informs the design. And I know when Lauren and I and, and our design team are working on a new identity and a new brand, having that knowledge and that information up front is invaluable in terms of the way that we it allows us to mine you know the the uh the personality that we see is there and how do we visually translate that you know i think building a brand you you need it to operate so that it um it supports the the ethos of an organization you know so the things are very thoughtfully engineered and those mechanics are developed in a way that it creates the system where that logo and that brand is a representation of their mission and their vision and their values for both, as we were saying earlier, the public, but also for the people that work, you know, the individuals that work at these organizations, as well as the people they're trying to attract. I would also just like to add that a lot of people look at designers and they're like, oh, you're so creative. You can 
just create things and it's so magical what you do. It's also beautiful. It's also pretty, but like a lot of it comes, (laughs) (laughs) but a lot of it comes back to the strategy and that's what really pushes a brand and makes it, um, it takes it from good to great. It it really, every brand has a story behind it. So why not have that story put, have the symbolism um, involved in the actual mark all the way down to the color. We're not just throwing any color on just to throw a color on. There's a lot of thought that goes into every little detail that we do when we create a brand. Well, I always say that that narrative empowers the mark. You know, it creates a touchstone for which those stories are told. You know, not only that mission and vision and values, but it also, you know, that narrative that we build into a mark. And we, I feel like over the, Lauren and I were just talking about this, even in the colors, once they're established, we even brand the colors and explain the almost the personality behind the colors. So those two become ownable for that client and for that organization. Well, Brian, what I love about what you were saying is that with many of the brands, I, I should say with all of the brands that I've seen your team create over the years, I love that you hand them off with a story. It's something that becomes a part of how they talk about themselves in the room and their point of differentiation. It is not just something that lives on the page. And there's so much thoughtful curation of that narrative um, that I think that's a layer to our brand guidelines that often is you know, just as important as the application or the rollout plan. And I just, I think that's that's fascinating how you really take it into this, this kind of next level that allows it to be much more actionable, which I know is a touchstone of much of the work we do here at Sharkamento. And we talk about it all the time as, you know, for example, in research, we hear this a lot <laughs> where we inherit plans from other firms and the client will say, you know, we spent so much money on this and we just have no way to activate it. And what's missing is that actionable piece of the plan that allows the client to take it, run with it, implement it, and live that brand every day. And I think that, you know, just love to pay you a compliment when you're in the room. I think that's what your team does such a good job of. Yeah. You know, building those narratives into the development of that mark gives them a story to tell, you know, so it's not just form on paper, as Lauren said, a form on the corner of a website. What's behind that company is built into, as I keep saying, the mechanics of that mark. And it gives them something to then share with the clients, employees, shareholders. It allows that, it it gives a, a history and almost a forecast to that organization of what they're sharing. Absolutely. I must say though, like for me, seeing the brand environment is amazing, but the brand standards, the brand guidelines, that's one of my most favorite things in the work that we do because it, from a research and strategy perspective, you can see the narrative that you talked about and the story, Lauren, that you, you mentioned, but also all those parameters that, does, that you have set, those guidelines, but they still allow for so much flexibility. Can you guys talk a little bit about how important the role of brand guidelines are in the work that we do? Yeah, I think brand guidelines are, I mean, exactly as the word says, guidelines. They're not meant to be super strict rules for clients to feel stuck between walls. With They're really intended to just provide a couple simple rules that help the client kind of figure out how to begin working with their new mark. Um, so it's, it could be a brand new thing for them, or it could be just a slight refresh, but 
sometimes these guidelines really help them to own their mark a little bit more and know not to put it in a super crowded photo where you can't see it very well. We really want these marks to really shine off the page or on the website wherever they're being used. So that's what those are for, is just to help them see where to and where not to use the logo. It's kind of like leaving a note for a babysitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't do this. You'll be fine. Um, but no, I think they're, they are an incredibly an integral moment for that client because in a sense, there's different opportunities where they may be working with a vendor where they have to have something produced and it, it, it empowers them. It empowers them to make sure that the integrity of that brand that, you know, that we keep saying that we have so thoughtfully developed for them um, and, the, and that narrative behind it is always elevated in the best possible way and executed in the best possible way so that it is reflecting positively on them as an organization. Great. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the trends that we're seeing discussed when it comes to branding. And Brian and Lauren, I know you have some thoughts on this, Eric, as well. Um, One of the things that's come up and is a little bit buzzy is this idea of de-branding. And I know all of us look at that word and we cringe a little bit, but can you talk to us about what de-branding is? So de-branding is considered the idea of removing the name or simplifying the complex details or shapes and really flattening a logo's mark. Target would be a great example. You don't have to see the word target. You just have to see the two circles to know that it's target. You, you see the red, you instantly have brand recognition. Um, another one is McDonald's. They've been doing a lot of um, billboards lately where they will just put a picture of a burger and just by the look of it, you know that it's McDonald's. Same with the French fries, that sort of thing. It's It really comes down to brand recognition. And that's like the biggest part of de-branding is that you have to have that brand recognition to be able to do it. So it's not something yeah, that Yeah, de-branding, brand. it's, it's a bit of a luxury, I think, for brands because you, you have to have that recognition. You have to have that brand awareness in the market. You know, a Starbucks, for example, could could do that in terms of doesn't have to say Starbucks, but you see the siren, you know it's Starbucks, um, MasterCard. Even another example of debranding would be a few summers ago when Coca-Cola did that whole share a Coke with a friend, and it was their bottles on the shelves with different names. Coca-Cola wasn't on there at all, but it was the, the colors, the typography. You knew that that was Coca-Cola, and so that created a whole buzz of a campaign. So that's an, a great example of successful debranding, where you, they don't need their mark to carry or create recognition, but it's the brand recognition elevates and carries the campaign for them. And that's the that's a true sign of the performance, right? And then the other element of it is that the present side of it, and I think through deep brand standards, you can start to introduce the identity system into that, right? And, and to that kit of parts that we talked about earlier, you can break it up and use those elements in different ways. Mm-hmm. But you need to have both, right? You need to have the presence and the performance. The other thing I would add to it is that even though we're saying de-branding, what it is is extreme branding. Because as you've said, Lauren, it is that kit of parts, and that would include fonts, that would include the way that rollout happens or is applied. The campaign has to be really tied to the brand. So you're actually introducing that kit of parts more intensely throughout the campaign. Brian, I think your example of the can is really... um, a good example of that because the can didn't change, the shape didn't change, the color palette didn't change, the fonts didn't change. It was just by introducing new elements and reworking them in different ways that that was extended to kind of more intensely dial up the brand personality and positioning of Coca-Cola. 
and do it in a new, fresh way. There are a number of companies that feel that debranding can distance their company from some of the anti-corporate backlash of younger generations. But the reality is they still know that that is your brand, even if they're not seeing it. Doesn't mean that they're not going to spend their money with you, as evidenced by some of the sales trends that we've seen over the last few years, but it may affect their perception of the brand. And that's something that we will continue to watch. It's creating those experiences and making them more approachable, dare I even say more palatable. So if a a large corporation like a Starbucks is creating an event, but they've debranded so that it feels more like a local event or locally curated event, it's going to have a different response and a different audience will be more welcoming to that event and and to that um, initiative. So the other piece of this conversation around debranding is this idea that brands are becoming much more simplistic and taking on almost like a stamped feel. And I'm curious how you would respond to this. Do you think this is debranding? Do you think this is a trend? Is this playing into some kind of change in design sensibility? What What are your feelings on this? Well, I think with any design trend, you know, and it, this goes back to what we talked about earlier about that strategy and that research supporting the brand. Why are you, in a sense, quote unquote, debranding? Are you doing it because everybody else is doing it? It's something everyone else in your industry is doing it? Or is it something that you, is it truly going to benefit the brand? Is it going to be something that's fitting and appropriate for that brand to go through that evolution? You know, a lot of times, you know, when we talk about, this is a bigger conversation about trends in design. But I always like to compare it to if that trend isn't applicable to your organization, it it's not sustainable. It's almost like putting a coat of paint on something that hasn't been primed. It's almost like a temporary revision, and you don't have that that research and that reasoning of why you're doing this. So I, to go back to your, your question, Hallie, I do think when it's appropriate, having the simplification of a logo to make it feel perhaps it's a brand that hasn't been in the market for a moment, or it needs to have this refreshed feel to appeal to a younger audience. I think there it's appropriate. But again, what is the research informing? Like, why are we going down this road of making this evolution as you would do for any brand? But I think a lot of times organizations may think like, oh, this simplification is an easy fix. But I go back to, is there a reason why that that's being done for your organization? You want to make sure, too, that it's not creating any sort of confusion or disruption within your organization or your company of why do they suddenly look so different? You, you don't want an audience to also to feel alienated or like that they've aged out of that product or whatnot. So it's a real fine line to walk. And again, I think that goes back to that anatomy of a brand and that research and that strategy of why something is being either rebranded refreshed, you know, redeveloped. It, it's Those are all elements too that are so integral to that decision of, of making. It seems like a simple change, is it, but the ripple effect can be, it moves deep. Yeah. One thing I want to add to that, Brian, is there's an instinct that sometimes it's time for a rebrand. And I think the, the why that you brought up is really important because is it time for a rebrand or is it time for a refresh campaign or a new campaign? And I think that, you know, that's something that, you know, the strategy helps to inform because you can think a little bit deeper about are we repositioning 
Or is this an opportunity at a campaign level that may be seasonal and we don't need to commit to completely redesigning our brand in order to move the needle in a certain direction? So I think it's really important to, again, always be evaluating things through a strategic lens. And I know that your team is really great about guiding clients down that path. Well, and I, th- I think too, you know, some brands are blessed with a mark that stands that test of time. And if you're questioning whether you should change it or not, to Allie's point earlier, you know, we we do have criteria that we've set up to really analyze a brand and, and make sure that it's working well. And every time we present a brand, we go through this criteria with the client and we ask them to evaluate this. So one of those criteria is the idea, is it memorable? Is it something that can be remembered? So if you've been in an organization for several years and people cannot remember your mark, that probably means you should reconsider what you're doing in the marketplace. Another aspect is attractive. And your immediate thought is surface level, right? Does it look beautiful? But it goes much deeper than that. We need to understand, is the word something beautiful to say when it's read aloud? Is it attractive to your audience? Do some testing. Is your customer actually connecting with the brand in, in meaningful ways? And is it particular? Are you are you kind of a copycat brand? Do people get you confused between others in the marketplace? You want to be particular. And there are certain trends that we're seeing, typefaces that are used with different yogurt brands and things like that that are being applied everywhere. It's a disservice to those brands. It creates a instability to mm-hmm. the brand. You, as I was saying before, suddenly that foundation is shifted in a way that isn't part of their path, I think is a way to say it. And that's where you create that confusion amongst your audience and also perhaps some trepidation for those who are new to your market or to your brand. And so that's why that balance is so particular. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the last one that we always look at, is it scalable? That's a good question they should have asked themselves back in the day when they designed the brand because it was really just products and services and now we've moved into more experiential products and and things that we're creating for people. We're moving more into experiences. So we need to make sure that that brand works in all those different ways, especially when you look at mergers and acquisitions. Do they have a brand that can apply across multiple industries? It may not always work, but... If you look at that legacy brand and you can pull some of those inherent drama out of that brand, that can be applied for things in the future. You know, Eric, one of the things that I think a lot about in what you just said, this kind of maps system, is the second point, which is attractive. And I think in the last five years, we've seen, rightfully so, a lot of conversation about equity and design. And what makes something attractive to one person doesn't necessarily make it attractive to all. And that's where research can really come in and be, you know, truly transformative because when you're dealing with a repositioning, when you're finding that your brand isn't resonating with everyone in your target audience, when you're dealing with issues of accessibility, maybe you are dealing with a brand that needs to be easily communicated to people of different abilities. What does that accessibility look like? I had the pleasure of working on a brand a few years ago that was a naming process to be used for a brand that would be used internationally. And that qualitative research on the brand following was so important because because what we found out was the language meant something so different in multiple languages with the audiences that were going to be 
utilizing, interacting with that brand. So I think it's just really, really important to think about where can you leverage that strategy to make sure your brand is doing what it needs to do and that the right people are being spoken to pre, during, and post-branding process. So that is something that, again, it's become a little buzzy to talk about equitable branding and looking at typefaces and inviting people in and, and all of this, but how do you know which direction to go without truly talking to the people that the brand is going to serve at the end of the day. So I think that's that's such a critical takeaway is don't think that design in a vacuum will solve all of that for you. I would love it if it could, right guys? <laughs> but the marriage of strategy and design is often what allows those, those projects to take flight. And I would say that because you want to involve the, the consumer in the process, right? So that their voice is heard and you need to invest your efforts upfront in the the period of exploratory research and enlightenment. Testing design afterwards, there's a place for that. But when we're talking about branding, it's so much more valuable to have the input at the beginning because that's going to guide everything. That would be your North Star for sure. Well, I think it'd be interesting, Lauren, to get your perspective when we talk about that strategy as well as the, the vast audience. I think a brand you just recently worked on where there were a lot of different uses that the logo would apply itself different events for different audiences. Was there a mindset that you had when developing that mark, knowing that it was also going to translate into a, a lot of different, it, literally different audiences with different goals at the end of the day? Yeah, so that mark was very interesting, a little bit different from some of the others that we've done or that I've done specifically. But yeah, when I kind of went into brainstorming how that one would work, we had talked about how a brand should always have that connecting factor to each sub-brand. We had talked about the house of brands and the branded house, kind of two different structures to yeah to a brand. And those that research and finding all of those different examples of existing brands and how they do it currently is so helpful to us too. I think that that kind of inspiration is so important for us too to kind of brainstorm before we dig into actually designing because it can show us what works and what doesn't work. And having, again, brand recognition is so important in this instance. So in that specific mark, I was able to create a simple shape, again, kind of taking that idea that this could eventually turn into a pattern, or in this case, it would turn into the actual connecting piece between the sub-brands and existing sub-brands. Do we want to end on something fun that's like, you know, what is the one branding trend you hope will die? Or like, yeah. do you like, yeah. do you, or something like, <laughs> you know, what is the one thing you wish clients knew when they started a branding process? Mm, or, kind of, yeah, maybe just not a trend, but uh, yeah, like you Or said. what is your favorite part? You know, what is, it could be interesting, like to show the, the breadth of what we do from a discipline standpoint, like what is our favorite part of the process? Yeah. You know, like it's interesting, Eric, you, you love brand I love guidelines where I'm like, hey, like they get me so in like the trenches where I love the application, yeah. obviously. So that to me is a good reflection of like how the different mindsets work to like make this very strong brand, you know, the discovery with the client, you know, presenting to the client, you know, things like that kind of, and it kind of takes the listener through the kind of the, four highlights of maybe the process that they could experience with us. Another thought is, what is the best reaction you have ever received from a client when you revealed a new brand? Uh, tears. 
I have actually once had tears and that was the best happy tears. <laughs> they weren't, you know, they were like, Oh God, what have you done? Uh, but no, I think, you know, I say that reaction just because a brand is so close to someone, you know, it, it, if it's a new brand or it's an existing brand, it's, you know, a lot, especially if it's a new brand, you know, it's seeing their vision begin, begin for the first time to come to life and to, to materialize literally before their eyes. I think mine is kind of a, a double-edged sword in a sense. So one of the most exciting things that I've encountered quite recently, but also one of the most painful things is that once you, the client sees the logo that they want and that they have chosen, they're immediately wanting to use it right away. And that's like the biggest compliment. And also it freaks me out because oh, I'm yeah. like, let me perfect it and let me make sure that it's 100% right, there for you. Right. And so that's a really exciting moment, but also a really scary process. So. Well, Lauren, I think if you had a penny, maybe more than a penny, but a dollar for every time that a client's done that, you'd be rich because I feel like that's happened a lot recently where they just get so excited and want to start applying it. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, tears and then the, the jumping the, the gun. Excitement, yeah. It's It's one of those things that we completely understand because you want to get it out there in the world, but wow, yeah. <laughs> one other thing that I would add that is always a joy is when the naysayers in the process get excited when they see something on the page. Yeah, right. So I've been, you know, over the course of my career, I've been involved with so many branding projects where at the beginning of the process, you have somebody who without fail is like, why are we investing the time or the resources or the money in this? And they get to the end of the day and that person finally gives you a little bit of an attaboy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's exciting. You know, I love the power of what we do being able to change hearts and minds and it starts with the client and being able to have their team adopt what we're doing and really want to own it whether they're using it before we want them to be using it or not I think it's so great to see that excitement and that's the power of a process that allows these these new brands to be meaningful and and truly give new life to an organization so thanks for such a great conversation and I would really welcome anyone that's listening to contribute their thoughts. We'd love to hear from you on social media. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or wherever you like to consume your social media and join us next time for another exciting episode of Open Swim.